the first chapter of Romans, received grace. And continue to um, look at this letter which we began to look at last week. Let me read the passage. Let me read the passage again. These first seven verses, and uh, then we're going to again to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including us. We're going to obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the trust by God's Spirit for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we, we take these uh, Bibles that we have in our hands for granted so often, but on this occasion, and I trust more and more, we don't and we won't. Uh, you've not left us in darkness. You've spoken into the chaos and the confusion of the world in which we live. And you have preserved what you have spoken in this, your word. And we thank you for it. We thank you that we can come to it because it's true. It originates with you. And you've kept it so that we might have this truth before us. But we need your spirit. Uh, Lord, these words will remain black words on a white page apart from the work of your spirit. So grant us your spirit so that our hearts might be enriched, so that our hearts might be enlivened, so that we might know and do the truth of your word to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Those of you uh, who were with us last week know that we started this uh, study in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's, um, it's a book, as we'll see in the weeks to come, that has shaped the life of the church uh, for centuries Going all the way back to the beginning, we're, we're looking at it because we're kind of in a transition. Obviously, we've moved from Beachland Elementary School. We're here in this, in this great room. I, it's great to see you all. It's, I just feel like I'm a long way away from you. I feel like I need to be down there. <laughs> but it's, it's wonderful to be here, obviously, and, um, and to be able to, to worship in, in, in our own home, a place that is ours. It's a temporary residence. I trust you know that. We have, a permanent residence waiting for us. This is a temporary home, and I'm not thinking of the one that's a little closer to US-1 out in front of this building. Um, I'm thinking of our permanent home, the new heaven and the new earth. But what a great and beautiful and wonderful place to be as a temporary residence for us as we, we gather to worship. And um, after thinking about this and, and talking with folks about what we would do in the new building, I, I decided that we would, we would make our way through this letter to the Romans. We're going to take a year or so to do it, which is ambitious, frankly. I think I told you last week that Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 14 years in this letter, and he didn't get out of chapter 14. He spent a year a chapter. I'm going to try and spend about a month a chapter, which is going to be a challenge. So pray for me, but I hope you'll look forward to it because... Um, it's, it's a, it's a uh, as I said, a significant letter, and there are two main reasons for wanting to do this. Um, the first of them uh, is for our sakes, for us, if you will, as Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And what this letter is going to do for us uh, is remind us of some things. It's going to remind us of some core things, some foundational things. It's frankly going to help us remember what the foundation of our ministry is. What is it that we're about here? 
And then the other reason, the other thing that I, that I trust this study of Romans will do, um, and I really do mean this sincerely, I'm, I'm not being disingenuous in saying this, I, I hope that folks who, who come here for the first time will stick with us for a while so that through this study of Romans, you can become better acquainted with who we are and what we are and why we do what we do. So it, it's, it's going to serve those of us who have been a part of Christ the King for some time, whether for weeks or months. It's going to serve uh, to remind us of some things, and, and it's going to serve to introduce folks who are new to us to the things that we really believe. And, and those things that we really believe can be summarized by this phrase that you find in the first verses of, of this letter, um, the phrase, the gospel of God. That's, that's what we're about here. That's, I think, the great theme of this letter, the gospel of God. The, as I said last week, the gospel. It's not one among many. We believe it's the one gospel, the gospel, the truth. And gospel means good news, great good news. It's, it's the defining statement. It is, it is the statement of great good news, and it comes from God. It comes from God, and it is about God. That's the, that's the theme, the great theme, it seems to me, of this, of this letter, the gospel of God. And that's what we're going to remind ourselves of. What is it that makes up that gospel? Well, what is it that we want people to know about us and understand about us? Well, it's all compacted into, it's all compressed into those four little words. The gospel of God, the great good news about God, what God has done that comes from God. It doesn't originate in the mind of man, as we'll see. It comes from God. And that, I think, is even implicit in what Paul says about himself in these first verses. So that's why we're going to do this, and we're going to camp on it for a while, obviously, for several months, many months. And as we come to these verses, um, we're being told some things, these seven verses. And and as one commentator points out, you know, you, when you read the introductions to these letters, you, you, there's a temptation to read the introduction and say, okay, let's get beyond the introduction and get to the good stuff. Well, the introduction is the good stuff. It is the good stuff. It sets the trajectory for the good stuff. And some of that good stuff is conveyed to us um, really, really clearly in these verses. And, and there are some things here, um, some things in these verses um, about us, the things that Paul is reminding us of. He's reminding us who we are in these verses. He's reminding us who he was and who he is, but he's reminding the Roman Christians who they are, and he's reminding us, frankly, who we are. Um, he's reminding us what our mission is, what it is that we're doing here. Why are we here? Why are we in this building? What's the purpose of this thing? What's our mission? What's our purpose? And then he's finally, thirdly, he's, he's telling us how we do what it is our mission is. So you got three things here, okay? Big surprise, huh? For those of you who've been around for a while, not so much. You got three things here. Who are we? Well, in the first place, we are slaves and we have a master. What's our mission? Our mission is the nation's. Our mission is the nations. The mission is not ourselves. The mission is the nations, as it was for Paul. And what's the method? What's the means? Proclaiming, heralding this great good news. So there's an answer to the question, who are we? We're slaves. We have a master. There's an answer to the question, what are we about? We have a mission to go to the nations, and there's a method to this madness. And that method is to herald and proclaim this great good news. So that's, that's it. Those are the three things. 
Okay, here's the benediction and let's go. No, 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 I've got to talk to you a little more about it. So who are we? And I really want to camp on this one. The other two, I'll, I'll just touch on briefly. Um, but I really want to camp on this first one. Who are we? Well, Paul says, if you are a Christian today, you're a slave and you have a master. If you're a Christian today, you're a slave and you have a master. That's how he saw himself. Paul, a servant, many of the texts will render it, but many of the translations will have a little footnote thing, you know, a little one there, and they'll direct you either to the bottom or to the side. And you'll see perhaps a more literal translation of that word, bond servant or slave. It's, it's the Greek word doulos, and it means that. It means slave. It means slave. Someone who's bought with a price. That's what slavery is, right? People who were slaves were kidnapped in the first place, and then they were sold. They were kidnapped into one kind of slavery, and then they were sold into another kind of slavery. It's happened across all of human history. Understand what a slave is. That's the word that Paul is using here. Now, if you read the commentators, um, they struggle to understand what's going on. They're, you know, the living ones, the dead ones, the, all of them. They, they try to understand this. And many of them associate this word with the idea of a servant. And they see in this word um, allusions to the idea of the servant of the Lord that comes out of the Old Testament. The prophets were referred to as servants of the Lord. Moses and David were referred to as servants of the Lord. Throughout Jeremiah, as an example, and then in Ezekiel as well, the phrase appears, the servants of the Lord with respect to the prophets. But I really do believe that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, there's more going on here than just the idea of a servant, though he sees himself in that way. He sees himself as a servant. He sees himself more precisely and more specifically as a slave, as a slave. And here's the striking thing about this. There are three places, and I remember this from, and some of you may remember it as well, when we were studying Titus. Uh, two and a half years ago. Remember, it took almost a year to get through Titus, four chapters, three chapters, right? We're going to go faster through Romans, I promise you. But I remember learning this when we, were, when we were working our way through Titus. Because in Titus, Paul refers to himself as a slave. But there are only two places other than Titus where he refers to himself in that way. Out of all of the letters, the 13 letters that Paul wrote... Only three of them, in only three of them, is that designation found. It's found in Titus, it's found in Philippians, and it's found in Romans. Now, why doesn't he refer to himself as a slave when he writes to the Colossians, for example, or when he addresses Timothy in the first two of the pastoral epistles? Why doesn't he refer to himself as a slave when he writes to the Corinthians? Well, here's why, in my judgment, in my estimation. Why does the word slave appear in those three letters? Because those three letters are particularly addressed to Roman citizens. And Roman citizens prized their freedom. They prized their freedom. Do you remember the movie Gladiator? Have any of you seen the movie Gladiator? Remember the movie Gladiator? Russell Crowe, you know, lopping off heads and arms and legs and everything else. What was the outcome for the gladiator who survived the gladiatorial contests? He was given freedom. Gladiators were slaves. They belonged to somebody else. 
And it was worth the freedom for a gladiator to expose himself to all of that cruelty so that he could acquire his freedom. Freedom was a big deal for Romans. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a free man. It was a, it was a liberating thing. It was a, it was a badge of honor. It was something to be talked about, something to be proud of for a Roman to say, I am a Roman citizen. And here is Paul in these three places addressing Romans, the church in Rome, which was made up very largely of Gentile converts to the gospel, citizens living in Rome. The Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony populated by Roman citizens and Titus, who was himself a Roman and a free man. In those three places, Paul uses this language to refer to himself. A slave not a free man. But as we come to understand, as Paul works his way through this letter, he understands that he is, in fact, a bound man. He is a man who has been bought with a price. But as we understand the gospel more and more, as we drill ever more deeply into the realities of the gospel, we understand, boy, we understand that this is a slavery Ironically, paradoxically, this is a slavery that leads to freedom. Paul uses this word later in chapter 6 of this letter in verses 17 to 19. He'll use the word slavery again. He'll describe two kinds of slavery. He'll describe those who are enslaved to unrighteousness, which leads to death. And he'll describe those who are enslaved to righteousness. In fact, enslaved to the king of righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. And that is a slavery that leads not to death, but leads to freedom. I understand this is a culture. I've said this to our congregation, to you many times. I and mean, this is a culture that doesn't want to talk about sin. It doesn't want to do what we did in this service. It doesn't want to peel away the layers of our own hearts. It doesn't want to take the law of God and look squarely into the law of God and see the law of God as a mirror in which we see our reflection and not just external behaviors and acts and those kinds of things, but the things that are way deep down in our hearts. The... the, the inappropriate desires, the inappropriate longings, the things that we all know in our heart of hearts lead us not in the direction of God, but in fact lead us away from God, take us away from God, and frankly bother us because we know enough about God to know that God is big enough to see well beyond the surface and to see into the depths of our souls. And so we're troubled. We're troubled when we examine our hearts. And we don't want to do that because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't. I don't. We don't want to do this. But the scriptures make it so very clear 
that it's a healthy thing to do. It can be the first step in the direction of real restoration, real wholeness, real freedom, real life, is to take a serious, sober look at what is in our hearts. A failure to do so only leads me farther and farther away from life and more deeply into death. Bob Dylan, some of you know the name Bob Dylan, 1979, greatest Christian record ever made, back when they made records before they started making CDs. The greatest Christian record ever made, Slow Train Coming. And there's a song in that album, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And the refrain is, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Everybody's a slave, folks. Everybody is a slave. Be honest with yourself. Everybody is a slave. There is a slavery that leads to death, and there is a slavery that leads to life. And that's what Paul wants to get at in this letter. That's why he's a preacher. That's why he does what he does. Frankly, that's why I do what I do. It's the only reason. It's the most compelling reason because there is a freedom out there. There is a liberty out there. There is a cleansing out there. There is a hope out there. There is a life out there. And it is a life that is found in Jesus Christ. So Paul's not ashamed at all to call himself a slave. He's not ashamed at all implicitly to be saying, I've been bought with a price, but here's the wonder of it all by that. He's been set free. And notice something about this freedom. Notice something about this slavery that leads to freedom. It doesn't come from within you. It, it doesn't come from Paul himself. It comes from outside of him. It comes from outside of him. He says that he's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 1. But here's what's interesting. That word called appears three times in the text. It appears there in verse 1, and it appears in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. But then verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul is called. They are called. Paul is bought with a price. Paul is the slave of Christ. He says that the Roman Christians are as well. They've been bought with a price. They belong to another. They belong to Jesus. They too are slaves. They have been called. This is an incredible thing. This idea that there is a voice outside my own head, not a voice that comes out of my head. I hear plenty of those voices, trust me. I hear all kinds of crazy voices. And I don't mean that literally. I mean, sometimes I kind of do. I mean, especially at 3.30 and 4 o'clock on Sunday mornings, the voices go nuts, you know? And I've told you about this. But there's another voice. There's a voice outside my head, a voice external to me. That's what Paul is saying. And he is calling. He is summoning. He is wooing. He is drawing. There is a voice, the Psalms say, that has gone out into all the earth. There's a voice. It's a wonderful story. Let me tell you this little story. When my only niece was about three years old, 
we were visiting Barb's brother and and his wife and our niece, and we were at their pool, and we're sitting alongside the pool, and she's sitting kind of in the, you know, the trough, you know, where the overflow stuff goes. She's sitting there, and she's only three years old, and she's sort of dangerously close to the edge. I mean, we were there, and we would have caught her if anything had happened. But from a distance, her mother said, Meredith, Meredith, get away from the edge of the pool. Get away from the edge of the pool. Wonderful illustration, right? She's in danger. She's acting foolishly. Someone who cares very much about her is calling to her and summoning her, a voice outside her own head, to get away from danger, to come to a place of safety. Her response was classic. She looked right at Barb and me and said, I don't hear my mother calling me. But see, what, what a great, I mean, look, my friends, the scriptures are full of all kinds of indications that God is calling, that there is a voice outside your own head that is summoning people. In theology, we make this distinction between the general call of God, the general call of God as it is manifest in the things that he's made, this voice that sounds forth out of the creation, and special revelation, the preaching, the heralding of the gospel, the word of God, how God summons people in that way, the general call of God, and the special call of God. And how many times have I been like my niece? I don't hear my father calling me. But anybody who is a Christian, anybody who is a Christian has had this incredible experience. It's it's invisible, it's unseen, it's mysterious, but it's this incredible experience of hearing a voice outside your own head, someone summoning you, a voice that, yes, is majestic and powerful and strong and imperious, but a voice outside your own head that is sweet and wonderful and that woos you and summons you and calls you to it. It's wonderful to be a pastor and to see this sort of thing happening. I mean, I'm... You know, it's fun to share these stories. You need to know, you need to know that God, this God we talk about, this God and we describe as infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, this unseen God, you need to be encouraged and to know that he's working. I'm evidence of that. I'm evidence of that. Because over 30 years ago, the voice broke through the din a voice that I'd never, you know, never paid attention to before, never heard before. When it got close, I'm Meredith. I don't hear my father calling me. But eventually the voice broke through and the voice became sweet. And I began to hear and delight in the fact that my father is calling. You need to know and be encouraged that God is out there. You don't see it. It's an unseen thing. It's a mysterious thing. It's going on in people's hearts and souls, deep in the inner recesses of places you can't see. I'm in a conversation with a guy right now. He does not know what's happening to him. He says, look, I'm, I'm interested in reading the Bible. I like, I like it. 
I like it. He didn't put it this way, but I think I can paraphrase what is the contrasting kind of a statement. I think he would say, up until a couple of months ago, maybe six months ago, if I'd read the Bible, it was like reading somebody else's mail. But now I sit with the Bible or I I think about Christian books and I'm reading Christian books. I'm reading a book like John Stott's Basic Christianity. And I like it. And it, it doesn't have the, well, you know what's happening? The voice is breaking through the din and the voice is wooing and summoning and calling and drawing him. And that's what Paul says happened to him. And that's what Paul says happens to Christians. Do you know anything about that? Anybody who is a Christian has some sense of being called and summoned, being wooed, being drawn. Let me say this gently, carefully. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if if this talk about a call, about a summons from a voice outside your own head is completely new, two things that I want to encourage you to do. The first is pray. God, help me hear the voice because I'm not hearing it. Pray. Maybe it seems strange to do that, but pray to the one whose voice you're not hearing (laughs) and pray that the one who is yelling and screaming and proclaiming his own existence and the goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ, pray that he will enable you to have ears to hear his voice. Pray. And if you're interested in kind of being, being summoned at some level to these things, talk to someone. I'd be happy to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. I, I, more than anything else, more than anything else, if I could fill my calendar every week with people who are interested in talking about these things, I would do it. I'd try to do it. Talk to me. Talk to a friend. Ask them to explain these things to you. That's what Paul's talking about, this voice that woos, that calls, that summons, that is powerful and strong, that he has heard and that the Roman Christians are heard and then have heard. And then just notice this. Notice this last thing about this. These slaves who have been bought with a price, who have been called, this call, this slavery that leads to freedom, verse 7, it is rooted in the love of God. It is rooted in the love of God. It is rooted in the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and who is love. All of this is an expression of his graciousness, his mercy, his kindness, his favor, his lavish outpouring of kindness upon those who are undeserving. Romans 5, 8. Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says in verse 1 of that same chapter that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? How does that happen? It happens because of the cross of Christ. It happens because of this love of God poured out, lavished upon sinners. What explains the cross? What accounts for the fact that I'm called? It is this love of God that is high and deep and wide and long, that is relentless, that is unfathomable. So who is Paul? Uh, Paul, you know, 
I can't, I mean, I can't wait to meet him. I can't, uh, there's going to be a long line to meet him. I'm going to find some of the shorter lines first. <laughs> there's going to be a long line to interact with Paul. But, you know, I, I want to talk to him and I want to hear from him and I want to listen to him talk about how the gospel set him free, liberated him, and how he experienced this love for God that made him the slave of Christ. That's who Paul was. That's who we are. Servants, slaves, called ones, loved by God. And having been loved by God, having been called by God, having been made slaves to Jesus Christ. What is our mission? Verse 6, our mission is to take these things to the nations. We'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this at greater length. Our mission is to take these things to the nations. Paul calls himself a slave. He also calls himself an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. And one who is sent is sent by another, commissioned by another. And that one who is commissioned by another is sent to someone, commissioned by that one and sent to that one. And Paul's audience is the nations and so is ours. Those are the ones we're commissioned to go to, the nations beginning here in Indian River County and by God's grace to the uttermost parts of the earth. We want so much for Christ the King Presbyterian Church, a church established by God's grace to continue to be, continue to be a missionary church, a church that understands that, yes, we are here for ourselves to delight in the worship of God, to delight in the wonder of his love and grace and mercy. But we are here not only for ourselves, we are here for others. We are here to turn our faces outward as the Apostle Paul turned his face outward. We are here as those having been set free, we have also been commissioned to be missionaries, heralding these glad tidings to the ends of the earth, sent with the great good news of deliverance and freedom in Jesus Christ. And what is the method? The method is the same method that it was for the Apostle Paul. When an apostle was sent, when a sent one was sent, that sent one was sent with a message for that audience. Didn't just show up and stare blankly at those to whom he was sent. He had something to say. He had something to proclaim, something to herald. And that is what we are to do. We are to herald this gospel, preach this gospel. Paul says it in verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's what drove him. That's what he loved to do. That's what he struggled to do. And that is what our method is. It is the method of heralding, proclaiming, announcing a message that has been entrusted to us, the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a church in the city of Ulm in Germany that we had the chance to visit almost 15 years ago, Barb and I did. And when you walk in the doors of the church and you proceed down the nave of that church, which is like coming into this thing, there are the, it's a good Gothic church and there are these pedestals along the walls of that church. And on the right-hand side, on each of those pedestals is a prophet. 
The prophets were the ones who were messengers. They were commissioned by God, sent by God, given a message to announce that message to Israel and to Judah. When you look down the left-hand side of the nave, there are these pedestals with the apostles, 12 Old Testament prophets and then apostles down the left-hand side of the nave. And what is so stunning, if you ever have a chance to go to this church, is that the pulpit is on one of those pedestals facing the prophets and surrounded by the apostles. What was the interior designer thinking when he designed the interior of that church? That the one who stands in a pulpit you understand how onerous this is? You understand how burdensome this is? You understand why I need desperately for you to pray every Sunday and Saturday and Friday before every Sunday? The designer of the interior of that church understood that the one who stands in that pulpit is standing in the place of the prophets and the apostles commissioned, set apart by God and entrusted with a message that comes from God. And it is that message and that message only which he is to preach. That's our method. That is our method. That is my job, to herald the glad tidings of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to proclaim with you, to you, through you, us together, out into the world, that the God of heaven and earth has sent the King into the world to suffer and die so that the nations might be delivered from their bondage and set free in their slavery to Jesus Christ. So we have a master who is Jesus. We have a mission to take the gospel to the nations. And we have a method that is central to it all, heralding, proclaiming the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. I don't say this lightly. God help us in this place and from this place to do that thing. Let's pray together. Lord God, we look to you, we praise you and thank you. We praise you and thank you that we've tasted these things. We praise you and thank you for this place where we can gather week by week to worship you. And by your grace to have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ more and more unpacked for us. As we praise you and thank you for these things, we call upon you to be mindful of us. We're weak, we're limited, we're frail, we're desperately needy people. We're crazy enough and bold enough to ask you in humility that you would take what we have and what we are and bless and prosper this for the sake of the people of Indian River County and for the sake of the nations. Lord Jesus, we commit this building to you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit these days, weeks, months, and years ahead of us to you to the end that the gospel for decades to come is heralded to the uttermost parts of the earth in this place and from this place so that you may be praised. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.